Tonight's reading comes from 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits, cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armored with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had greaves of bronze on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, took the provisions, and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the army was going forth to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag, in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David, with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. 
The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the, f- of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all, that all in this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." When the Philistine drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. The word of the Lord. like a story about the little guy defeating the big guy. A little boy or a young man defeating a giant through stealth and wit or luck. I like folk folk tales. I read hundreds of them to my kids. All their lives I've been reading hundreds of them to them. And I swear half of them are about a boy defeating a giant or a troll or an ogre. I like them, but after a while those stories get to be pretty predictable which is maybe the point of a folk tale to impress upon our minds a sort of lesson or truth. The giant doesn't always win. Little people can do big things. And this is what I learned about the story of David and Goliath in Sunday school. Except that God was thrown into the mix. It wasn't just that David was smart or witty. It was with God's help that he defeats the giant. Veggie Tales uses this story to teach Larry the Cucumber about self-esteem. Junior Asparagus plays a young man who wants to prove himself and will face the towering pickle. I mean, I think that's cute, and it seems like a good message. With God's help, even little guys can do big things. I mean, I practically wish that that's what this story was about. It seems good to teach little kids self-esteem. Or maybe even better yet, I wish it was about something along the lines of inspiring or empowering the powerless. The Davids, without armor or might, can pick up a stone and they can defeat the Goliaths. The Nicaraguan peasants can defeat the Sugarcane Corporation. Norma Ray can defeat the sweatshop textile industry. Aaron Brockovich can bring down PG&E. I mean, I love those kind of stories. They seem like hope to me for the world. I mean, I practically feel like there is no hope unless the giants can be defeated. I like to believe in a God that's on the side of the powerless. But David? He turns out to be the most powerful ruler that Israel had ever known. 
He is the guy that solidifies an enormous dynasty. He is a super shrewd political genius. He's a figure who represents the shift from dynamic prophet leaders of a nomadic faith into sedentary monarchs, imperial reality. So what this story seems to be about to me, and maybe I'm feeling a little bit cynical, and maybe I'm feeling a little bit cynical because the very first thing that came up when I Googled David and Goliath was a PR firm. We are David and Goliath. And we believe in being brave. Our name symbolizes it, our people embody it, and our work speaks it. We are a creative agency who helps challenger brands fight their way to market leadership. We seek aggressive clients looking to outmaneuver the big guys. And here are some of the Goliath challenges. Universal Studios. They helped steal significant market shares from Disney. And Bacardi. They reconnected the brand with a target audience who jumped on the vodka train. David and Goliath? So yeah, maybe I'm feeling a little bit cynical, but what this story in the Bible seems to be to me, it seems like a very slick piece of propaganda. It's practically a campaign ad. It wasn't written to inspire little Sunday school kids or the Nicaraguan peasants. It was written to promote David. And it works brilliantly that way. It's a brilliant way to introduce a candidate to the scene. Nobody's going to do a campaign ad where you have a rich guy in a suit being escorted out of a limo by a chauffeur that ends, say, with a candidate raising a glass of $300 champagne with the CEO of Halliburton. No. You're going to put him out in the field, talking to a farmer, maybe wearing a feed cap, shaking hands with the common man. I mean, the champagne thing is happening, you can be sure. But you're going to try to sell the public the idea that this guy's a regular guy. And he's where he is because of some personal integrity or something special about him, not because of pri privilege or party politics. In the chapter right before this story, David is sitting in the royal palace with the king, playing music, all tight and buddy-buddy in the palace with the king. So when the narrative shifts to this scene where this unknown, humble boy comes out, no one even knows who he is, just a simple guy without the entrapments of royalty, a boy in his sling and defeats the threat, the giant, the enemy, and he seems so faithful and brave. It practically feels like somebody turned on the TV to flash this ad across the narrative. He may have been in the palace yesterday, but here's the faithful and brave and regular old little shepherd boy. Young little shepherd boy. Every commentary I read emphasized that the story is narrowly unparalleled in literary skill. It's a very, very slick piece of work. And it plays on your emotions. It's a little one-sided. It's like propaganda. The giant and the mere lad. The one in heavy, formidable equipment. The other with a simple outfit of a shepherd. The insolence of the Philistine. And the faith and the fortitude of David. The cowardice of Israel, the helplessness of Saul, the blind animal passion of the champion, giant, and then the calm strategy of David.
All these contrasted effects, effects are worked out with consummate artistry. The point to promote David. His speech on the battlefield before his brilliant confrontation with the Philistine giant reveals more than some youthful religious zeal. It's really super smart politicking. Flattering the people of Israel as if they were an inspired and faithful army under God, something that they, something that they were decidedly not. He may be wearing a feed cap, he may be dressed like a shepherd, but that doesn't mean that he's Norma Ray, some prophetic and earthy. Throughout all the stories of David, he is and remains a rational and far-sighted architect of kingly institutions, always acting to invest in the stability of a royal regime. The handsome young shepherd boy with the slingshot becomes the most powerful leader Israel has or will ever know. And the story of his life, it's like a decadent monarchy. David gets Bathsheba pregnant and then has her husband killed to cover it up. And then this part seems almost farcical to me. When you consider that Israel was a people supposedly gathered around faith and the love of God, after David has cut off Goliath's head and paraded it through Jerusalem and brandished the cut-off giant's head before King Saul to show the whole world that there's a God in Israel, a cut-off giant's head? It's barbaric. After David has killed the giant, the text says, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with timbrels, with songs of joy singing. David, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. How joyful, how manly, how sexy. And King Saul is like, what? They say David killed ten thousands and I've only killed thousands? And he's angry. And he was suspicious from, of David from that day on. I mean, does that sound like doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with your God? I read one guy that figured out that David's body count by the end of his life is something like 140,000 men. Didn't we have tablets that said, do not kill, do not commit adultery? Some people think that the books of Samuel are really books of a national self-criticism. Israel had used to, they used to be a people that were held together by faith in God, at least ideally. There were pro prophets, but often reluctant prophets, like Moses, who rose up now and then to lead, but it was always crucial that the people know their security was in God. Not a man, not politics, not a charismatic leader. This was essential to their identity. But in the beginning of Samuel, the people start saying, we want a king. And the text actually has the people saying to Samuel, the prophet of God, you're old and your ways are old. Appoint for us a king so that we can be like all the other nations. And if you look at everything that comes before this, it's pretty clear. It's like a mantra refrain throughout the Pentateuch. Being like all the other nations is foolish. A foolish thing to strive to be. Foolish is hardly a strong enough word to express it. It's the last thing God would hope for God's people. And God's absolutely clear. He says to Samuel, 
In this demand for a king, the people are rejecting me. And God's like, tell them, Samuel, what getting a king will mean. So Samuel tells them, the king will take their best olives and wine, their sons and daughters, their energy and life. The king will make them fight his battles, plow his fields. The political dynasty, the imperial reality will sap their life, and they'll be like every nation, and that will be a tragedy. And it is. The days of David will be looked upon as prosperous days for Israel, but it will lead the nation to absolutely no beautiful place. It's quite a statement, really, by the rabbis that compiled these books that they named them First and Second Samuel. Because there are stories in First and Second Samuel almost all about David. Yet the rabbis give the weight to Samuel, the last prophet, the days before the kings. Israel may not have survived either politically or culturally without the steadying presence of a dynastic kingdom. But that move was always viewed with critique and ambivalence. Like it was a fateful juncture in the history that could only be written about with shades of tragedy and farce. As we've been noticing this whole time we've been doing this lectionary, the scripture often has a sort of anti-institutional bent. And yet it was the institution that preserved these scriptures. And we wouldn't have them in all that vast and strange and beautiful voices of interpretation if it wasn't for the institution that preserved them. It's a quagmire. What's the good news in this story? Maybe that God doesn't rain down fire and brimstone on all the people with all their faithless desire for a king. Or that God doesn't turn David into a pillar of salt. There's actually all sorts of grace and beauty in the story of David. There's pathos and desire and heartbreak and betrayal and loyalty. And this is the weird thing. God loves David. David is the symbol of the people's rejection of God. He is the figure who signifies their lack of faith. And God loves him a lot anyway. This could be a story of divine judgment and impatience. But instead, it's a story of the drama that unfolds in the life of people and the world. The tragedy and the farce and the crooked ambitions, the propaganda, the desires, love, jealousy, sadness, brokenness of a people who in the end are loved by God. Even when they're bastards. Or even when they're just politically expedient or when they're narcissistic or absurd. God isn't really on the side of the powerless here, at least not only on the side of the powerless. God loves David, one of the most powerful men in the history of Israel. Kind of bugs me, but maybe it should give us hope. The royal dynasty versus a nomadic faith, imperial reality, power. We live it. We choose it. And maybe God's just going to be with us, no matter what we do, throughout all our futile dramas. Maybe we'll do what we do, keep believing in kings more than our neighbors, screwing things up, and we'll be narcissistic and just plain mistaken, and our motivations will never be pure, and we'll screw up, and we'll screw up, and we'll eat up propaganda. And God's grace will still move in and out and all around and redeem the world in spite of us. 
or maybe even through us from time to time. Maybe there's actually no reason to despair, even though we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 